0: Certainly glad to see all of you here this evening. I hope that you've had a good day. I hope that you were able to say that you were fulfilled this morning in your worship to God and that it was a happy day and an edifying day and very uplifting. We've set out on a journey through Romans, uh, wanting to see what we need to know from that and what we can glean from that and to see how it would apply to us. Uh, Romans is a very interesting book. I will not say that I have a firm grasp of the entire book. So I stand to be corrected if there's anything that you feel like might be wrong. I hope that we're going to stay pretty strict to the Word. I'm not going to bring in a lot of extra verses. Although if you look at the corresponding uh, commentaries or center reference, Paul was very much bringing in many, many Old Testament verses into Romans chapter 3. He's using them over and over and over again. And so, there literally could be up to a hundred or more verses that he relied upon as he wrote this. Even though he didn't reference them by where they were, he certainly was dealing with the Jews, and they knew exactly where those things he was talking about were coming from. I want us to realize that, that Paul's... Uh, Purpose in writing this was to try to bring the church together. And I think many times when we read the Bible and when we look at the Bible, and especially when we're young, we look at it and it's very sanitized. It's a very clean-cut situation. It's something like where you come into the church and we all sit on pews like we do today, and we have one speaker and he comes up and he explains things. They had one speaker at a time, but they were allowed to disagree. Disagree. They had different ways of doing things as they went through these trials. They were bringing different cultures together. You were bringing the Gentiles into the Jewish realm under the auspices of Christianity. So there were two different ideologies being brought together. One that was brand new. One where these people that had lived pagan lives. They had lived without God, and they were uh, basically a law unto themselves, and they were out here in the wilderness, And now they were being introduced to God and godly things and being introduced to Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And you had the Jews who had always had a relationship with God for generations and generations. And they had certain ways of doing things. And God had had specific commandments to them. It was very structured and it was very disciplined. And we know that they failed miserably. But they still held on to that. That law was very, very important to them. Even if they weren't carrying it out, it was very important to them to bind it on others. It was comfortable. It was what they knew. And and they felt like it was very godly. And it was. It was the perfect law of the old law. And yet it could not save. It was the best law God made that law. He gave that law to mankind. There could not be a better law written that we would follow by the T of the law than the old law. But its failure was it could not save. It simply could not do that. Man could not be perfect in his ways and the ways that he followed in the old law. So what's happening here is there are some things that are being bound. There are some beliefs that are being brought into the church by the Jews that Paul is refuting. There are some things that he is going to treat very harshly. He is not going to beat around the bush. He is not going to be, oh, by the way, how do you feel about this? He's pretty much coming right down Front Street. And he's pretty much telling them, You know, guys, you've just got some things that are just flat wrong, and you're going to have to fix them. And you're going to have to be mindful that these Jews do not have to do the things of the law that you had to do in the past. And he wants that to become abundantly clear. And this ideology that was in the church at that time, that these Jews felt like they were a little bit above, they were a little bit better, they had the advantage... They had the promise of the seed of Abraham. They were still grabbing on to those things, and they were not relinquishing that to follow Jesus and His promise. And so as we go down into verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, it says, you know, He's went through before that, and He's he's been pretty harsh with them, and uh, wants them to understand that they can't boast They were doing the things that they were teaching others not to do. They were involved in. He's been pretty straightforward in chapter 2, as Andrew showed us. And those things were not right. They were very hypocritical. They were an abomination to God. They were all out sin. And he comes down and he says, What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. The old law that the Jews had had, it had given them discipline, if they were allowing it to. It had given them structure and way of life. It had given them expectations to be met, and a way to be at peace with God. Not to be forgiven, but to be at peace. Peace to roll those sins forward. And it gave them a healthy fear and respect of God if they were following it with their heart. God has always wanted the heart of man. He has always sought after the heart. Not for uh, forced obedience, but through the will of man to want to be close to God, to desire to walk with God. And that has always been God's desire, that He would be able to have that influence on man, that His choice would be God, and it would be His choice. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. He says, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. So Paul's going to pose some questions here. Remember, it's in a letter, and he's going to pose some questions that he knows are out there by these Jews. This one being, Will the unbelief of Jews nullify God's promise, the seed of Abraham? Is that going to nullify it? Because they didn't believe that it would. They believed that no matter what, that promise was made. And by their lineage and by the act of circumcision, they were guaranteed to be okay with God. That was their position. And yet we see that that Paul is going to address that. And he knows that that question is out there, so he has posed it. And Paul made no bones about it. He said, God forbid... God's righteousness is not contingent upon the morality of mankind. He has always required obedience from the heart to receive His spiritual blessings. Now think about when God blessed the Jews as a people, what did He do for them? He led them around their enemies. He physically fed them. He directed their paths. He instructed them. But most of the things that were done as a whole for the Jews were physical things, weren't they? I'm not talking about the law. I'm talking about the the blessings that he gave to them as a whole. And what happens when some of them disobeyed? Sometimes they were killed by the thousands, weren't they? They either were, were succumbed to their enemies, or in one point Korah is swallowed up by the ground because they are disobedient to God and they are defiant about that but they was a very physical thing when it was a people as a whole, not as individuals. Individuals were blessed spiritually by love and obedience to God. God's faithfulness is exactly why the disobedient are denied spiritual blessings. God's faithfulness is based on truth and on His goodness and on His purity. And it prevents those that are disobedient, those that are wicked, from being blessed spiritually. This was not something the Jews were willing to accept. And we see that in this, Paul continues to disassemble any ideology that the Jews would still have special favor with God when considering irregardless of their wickedness because of the promise of Abraham and his seed, to Abraham and his seed. It simply was not possible. And they were still wanting to bring that in. In verses 5 through 8, he poses another question. He says, But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto His glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Paul is refuting an argument that the Jews had made that if God's righteousness shines because of the unrighteousness of them, would God not be unrighteous to take vengeance on them? It's a very twisted way of looking at things. Well, if my wrong allows God to be, be uh, looked favorable favorable upon, why would I be judged a sinner? Paul doesn't have a lot of patience for this. His response? God forbid. This is total absurdity. How would God judge the the world if this was so? God is pure. God is whole. And God is very capable of all things, and perfection. And here they were twisting that and making something bad of it. In verses 7 and 8, it says, For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto His glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, Let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just." So Paul's answer, whose damnation is just? If you believe that to do evil will bring good, then he says your damnation is just. He goes on in verse 9 and he says, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. So again, he refers back to all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He's not making the Gentiles out to be better, but he is specifically addressing the wrongs of these Jews. Now let's look at verse 10 through 18, which again are all uh, are, are coming out of Psalms and Proverbs, each one of these. And you can go back and cross-reference those. And he says, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one, There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So all of these, we see, are very harsh, aren't they? They're just calling it like it is. They come straight out. All of these evil things that they had been a part of. And in verse 19, he says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. So who was he addressing specifically? He was specifically addressing these Jews, straight on. That's exactly he said. He said, uh, "What things are whatsoever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law." Who was under the law? The Jews were, not the Gentiles. They weren't under the old law, but the Jews were, and so he specifically pins this to them. He says, these things are talking about you and the way that you've lived. He says that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So again, this idea, they're all the same. They've all come short of the glory of God. The Gentiles who had been living pagan lives and very guilty of all kinds of sins and atrocities. And he said, you Jews have done the same. You had the law and yet you denied the law. You did the very things that you told others were wrong to do. You were involved in all sorts of evil. And you knew that it was wrong. A paraphrase of 19 that I think is fitting. It says, this is what your own law says about you. And the Jews cannot deny scripture that was written for them. And about them. Paul left no doubt who he was directing this teaching towards, or that all were guilty before God. So in verse 20, he comes down and he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So there was no justification through law. Not even the greatest and most concise law ever written. The old law of God, the law, does not save. It served to identify sin and condemn because of it. It allowed them to know where those parameters were and what was right and what was wrong. And it gave them every advantage because they had the oracles of God. We saw that at the very beginning. The law was given and it gave them so much. And yet it also prophesied of things changing in the future, of the coming of the Messiah and the blessings from that. So we get to verse 21 and he says, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So we come to the pivotal point of Paul's exhortation from the Old Law to the New Testament of Jesus Christ. He has shown all to be guilty under sin and under the judgment of God, and now He will show how mankind can be redeemed. So we look at verse 22, and He says, "...even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference." And I believe that unto all and that upon all is something he uses in other chapters designating whether it was to Jew or Gentile. Expressed a different way but to mean the same thing. That they had that ability through that and upon that. In verse 23 he says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So again, all are guilty. All are short. And all of this needs to be rectified in the same way. So in verses 24 through 26, he says, "...being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God." To declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Paul introduces the good news that all can be redeemed through Christ's blood, that Christ was just and a justifier of those who would call on His name. So he's bringing them together now He spent some time in these first few chapters doing away with these ideas that these Jews that had come into the church. Now remember, we're not talking about Jews that weren't in the church. And I think that's important to note too. He's talking to Jews that were at Rome, in the church. That's where the letter went. So it wasn't just Jews that weren't familiar, that they hadn't been learning about Christ. It wasn't that they didn't have any realization of that. But again, they were trying to merge what they had held on to to what was coming. And it simply was not acceptable. And they were forcing it upon the rest of the church. And that's why Paul had to come in and change that. And then he he introduces this, this idea that all are one, they've all come short, and they need Jesus Christ. In verse 27... It says, where is boasting then? He says, it is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. So it wasn't possible to boast. He had already tore them all down, that there was nothing good, nothing that they could even do that was good enough to make them right with God. No law-abiding, no anything. Without Jesus, it was impossible. And so part of that was they must be humble enough to admit without reliance on Jesus Christ, there was no way to be saved. In verse 28 to 31, it says, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is He not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. So this is not something that was new to them. They were in the church. They had heard this. But He's reiterating over and over again that they are the same. They are both lost without Jesus. And God is very much the God of the Gentiles, just as He was for the Jews. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith, and uncircumcision through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. So God has brought Jew and Gentile together as one under Christ. Paul is continuing to push that as hard as he can so that these Jews will relinquish, they will humble themselves, and they will agree to be one with the Gentiles and the church can thrive and prosper together and there is no first place and second place but they are the same so I only had a few observations that I wanted to make here at the end I know this is going to be short and some of you may have wanted a a deeper dive but that was not my purpose I think it's pretty clear it's not clear when you're trying to study it it, uh, it takes a lot of twists and turns, but I think the overall picture is that the Jews were way overstepping. They needed to be corrected, and that was Paul's goal in this. But some op- observations that I came to as I looked at this, number one is that a birthright will not get you to heaven. I think it's important, how does this apply to us when we look at chapter studies? I know that we were asked to do that long ago, and it it has been important to me to do that. What we notice here is birthright will not get you to heaven. It's advantageous if it's used properly, but we've seen people that grew up in the church and are third, fourth, fifth generation. They've had every advantage in their family of knowing what God wants of them, and we've seen them choose to leave and walk away. It's just a fact of life, isn't it? We've all seen it. We all know somebody that's in that case, and they just chose to completely walk away. On the other hand, you may have a birthright that was not in the church, that was not anywhere near the church, that was contrary to God's will. Maybe your family lived in a horrible way. Maybe they were, in God's eyes, doing things openly as they thought that it was okay to do in life, and they were strictly forbidden by law. And yet, when you come to Jesus, and when you accept His Word, and you take the oracles of God which He has given us in the New Testament, the things that we need to live correctly, things can change. And that birthright does not prevent you from being right with God, nor does it exonerate you to be okay with God. It can be an advantage, and it can be a disadvantage. And the Jews took it only one way, that it could only be an advantage. And those that were living wickedly, it was a disadvantage because they thought they had it made without doing anything. Number two, obedience to law will not get you to heaven. But obedience from the heart and true desire to walk with Christ according to His will will allow our salvation through Jesus' blood. I hope that's clear, that's a little bit wordy, and I apologize for that. But strict obedience to a law simply for keeping law makes you a law keeper. If there is no love, if there is no heart, if there is no peace of mind that you are searching to be closer to God, then it is of no value. The value comes with the relationship with God. The value comes from wanting. To be near God. The value comes to submitting to His will. Thirdly, the wrath of man will not bring about the righteousness of God. You know, sometimes we can get so upset at people for their failures, for not meeting our expectations. We can get horribly upset. But our anger will not bring about bring about the righteousness of God. Individual choice to serve is always necessary for salvation. You know, when our kids are young, you know, <laughs> I'm going to tell them myself, and I remember this is what's so weird. I don't know how old I was. I was very young. And I don't know if you remember back in the old days, Walt Disney came on on Sunday nights. And it started at 6 o'clock. Six o'clock, and so I'm on the couch one day, and they've advertised, and there's really going to be this cool thing on Walt Disney. And we're living on 806 Portland, and I'm on an old couch, and I'm standing on the couch, and I am pumped. I am ready to see Walt Disney. And Dad says he turns the TV off, and he says we got to go. I said, Dad, I don't want to go. I want to watch Disney. You know how that ended. It was not well. And I was expounded the way of the Lord more clearly, and I went to church, and I enjoyed every minute of it. But I remember that so vividly. What, man, wanted something else, didn't I? And you know, we can make our kids go to church when they're young, and we can force them to be here on the pew. You know what's really important? is when they're old enough to be on the pew because they want to be. And I don't know a parent here that doesn't pray for that on a regular basis and doesn't pray that those kids will stay on that pew and they will accept the gospel and they will utilize the scripture to have the best life they can possibly have. I don't know a parent here that doesn't want that. But you know, there's sometimes we lose kids, don't we? They choose to walk away when they're old enough to do it. And I pray that we'll do everything we can to help one another not let that happen. But individual choice is always a part of salvation. Choosing to serve Christ. Wanting to be in His family. And walking by His side. And finally, as I was walking through this and thinking about this, it it just came to me. It may be something you've talked about a million times, but in the storms of life, when Jesus was upon the earth, Jesus was at peace during the storms. I find that interesting. You know, in the storms, they bring about chaos. They bring about fear. They bring about all these things for us. They cause us great grief during times of trial. And Jesus was asleep in the bottom of the boat in the middle of the storm. He wasn't just in the bottom of the boat. He was asleep. He was at peace. He was okay. And He didn't fear what was ahead. But you know, in the times of calm, Jesus was more pointed in His teachings, wasn't He? pharisees and hypocrites he called them names and he pointed out their wrongs and he said you're just wrong and you're going to perish if you don't repent you see in times in times of calm Jesus wasn't calm he was trying to keep you out of the storm and me out of the storm he didn't want us in the storm He wanted to catch us before the storm. He wanted us to be okay so when the storm came, we could have some peace. And Sometimes we just can't get there. Sometimes we just can't find that peace. So as I conclude tonight, I want to say I pray that God helps you find the peace. The peace that passes all understanding. The peace that calms in the storm. The peace that allows us to get to the other side. Whatever your pain, we've had a lot of loss here in the past little while. And you know, sad to say, we're going to continue to have loss. We're going to continue to have trial. We're going to continue to have pain as people. So let God be a part of that solution. Let God have that heart. Desire to seek Him. Desire to walk with Him. Do all you can to be right with Him. I pray on all of us that we can be successful. Certainly I need that. And I need the prayers of everyone here that I can obtain that. I hope we have not damaged God's Word in any way tonight. I hope that the things that I've talked about will help you understand some of the things going on there. And I don't claim to understand it all by any means. I want you to know that. So at this time, I'm going to ask you to get out your songbooks. We're going to offer an invitation. If there's anyone here that needs the prayers of the church, we want to pray with you. We want to be with you. We want to support you. We want to take care of you. If there's one here that hasn't started their walk, I hope you'll seriously consider that. The warnings that God has given. The rebuking that He has done in these Scriptures. And I pray that we'll repent and save our souls for all eternity. Won't you come as we stand and sing?